Well, I'd like to pray with you for a minute before we look into God's word. So let's, uh, let's bow together in prayer. You know, when we sing that song, Lord, it just reminds me, and when I think about what we're going to talk about here in the next few minutes, I'm always almost speechless when I think about you, Lord Jesus, going to the cross willingly for us. That at any moment you could have called an angel, an army of angels to come and rescue you and protect you. And you said to your father, not my will be done, but yours. And when you did that, I I believe you had me in mind. You had each person in this room in mind. Each person that's ever been or ever will be. Because you're God. And we are so grateful that you went to the cross for us. We know that it changes everything in life everything in life. And so as we consider your word now, we invite you to speak to us as only you can. We just offer ourselves to be uh, moved in the way that you would move us. And we pray these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen. We were in uh, Fort Coppell, Saskatchewan, which is a little community uh, outside of the city of Regina. It's a beautiful setting. There's a whole chain of lakes and, and, and valleys that Fort Coppell is part of. And if I remember correctly, it was 7 o'clock at night. And we were in an old church in that community. And the room that I was sitting in, actually Debbie and I was sitting in, was probably 25 feet long and 15 or 20 feet wide. I was 21, maybe 22 years of age. Deb was with me. I can't remember if we were engaged at that moment or just about to get engaged, but we'd been dating seriously for a couple years or so, and uh, we had marriage in mind. So we're sitting in this room, and uh, there's a group of 15 to, say, 18 people from surrounding communities that have come together for this meeting. And we were invited to come to this meeting. And we were kind of seated in almost an oval shape. And I was down at the bottom end of the oval. And Debbie was sitting right beside me to my right. And we were, discu- we were invited to come and have this discussion with these people. And very quickly, it became a theological discussion. Directly, almost directly across the room, I can see him sitting there right now. Up at the other end of the oval, just a little bit to my left, was a guy named Bob. Bob was 55 years of age or so. Bob was the minister at that church. And Bob, Bob didn't like me at all. He made no bones about it, even though we'd never met. I was in my last year of my bachelor's degree at that point. He says, I've been reading about people like you. This is how we started out. I've been reading about people like you and what kind of a theological uh, understanding you have. And it was very clear to everyone that Bob was not happy. But the group had invited us to come and we began to talk. And they were asking me some questions about my life, some foundational things. And they asked me some pointed questions and I gave very pointed answers. And I said, listen, here's two things that you need to understand about me. These are two foundational things, bottom line things, that shape everything I do in life. One of them is this. I believe that the 66 books 
of the can, what's called the canon of Scripture. That's how we know what's the, it's, it literally means the measuring read of Scripture are inerrant. And the technical language is, is that the original autographs, the original manuscripts that were given were without error. So that's one of the foundational things I believe then, and I believe it even more strongly now. Secondly, and flowing out of that, because one of the big stories or meta-stories of Scripture is this, that Jesus, I said to them, Jesus has said that he is the only way through whom you can have a relationship with God. This is what Jesus says. He doesn't say to us that he is a way. He doesn't say that he's one way among others. He says, I am the way. Unique, standalone. Well, Bob really didn't like those two statements at all. And he came at me verbally right away. And when I think back now, it was, it was so tragic that night, but when I think back now, I think it might have looked a little bit humorous because as I'm sitting him, seeing him sitting there, he launches at me verbally, and we start you know, sort of theologically jousting back and forth. And the, the heads around the room, I remember them going like this like a tennis match, back and forth. It was really sad at the moment, kind of funny when I think back on it right now. Eventually, Bob said to me, I think that after a person dies, that God just gives everybody a chance to go to heaven, and everybody does. I immediately responded to him, if that's true, why did Jesus bother going to all the effort of having himself crucified and rise from the dead? Bob didn't like that at all. Bob was broaching an idea more than 30 years ago that some people have. And there might even be some people in this room that have that idea. And it might be articulated something like this. Won't it just all come out in the wash after we die? You know, the loving God, won't he just make a way for everybody, even the ones that had nothing to do with them whatsoever? Won't he just make a way for all of them to get there? People like Bob will take a passage like we're about to read, and they will twist it just a little bit to try and make that point. And we're going to get to that in just a couple of minutes. But before we do, if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, found over there towards the right of the New Testament. If you come to Galatians and Ephesians, keep going a little bit further to the right. If you go all the way to Revelation, you're a little too far, just come back a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8 through 22. And I'd like to read that to you right now. And as I do this, I remind you that this is the word of the Lord. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this end you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. 
He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Through whom also Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison. Who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you um, also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So Peter, who not surprisingly wrote the books of First and Second Peter, wrote these letters, wrote about a lot of weighty issues, and we've been exploring some of these in this series of messages. This is number five in this series, and uh, one of the th- you know a number of the things he talks about in this book. He talks about salvation. He talks about sanctification, about that process where where God looks at us positionally because we're in Christ, and He sees us positionally as holy, but we also live life out. Um, becoming more and more like Christ through his power. He talks about the Trinity. He talks about the blood of Christ. There, there's, there's a number of, of big ideas. Two big themes that we see in this book is the, the hope that we have in Christ. And we're going to be circling around that for a while here today. And that we were secondly created to be different from this world. Um, The best scholars would assume that this book was written by Peter in the year about 64 through 68 AD after the death of Christ. And that's significant because if you know your Roman history at all, you know that that was the era when Nero was emperor of Rome. Nero was one twisted individual, sick. He killed his mom. He killed his first wife. He probably murdered his second wife as well. He wanted to be great in his own eyes, and so he wanted to undertake this building program. And when the Senate said, we don't have the cash, we can't do it, Nero, he got angry and got the city lit on fire. And it burned for a number of days, and upwards of half of the city of Rome went up in the fire. Because then he wanted to rebuild it and say, look how great I am. Now, they were mad at him for doing this, and they suspected that he was behind it. And so he said, I need to look for a fall guy, someone to lay this off on. Who do I hate already? And Nero had a hate on for the Christ ones. 
the Christians. They were called the Christ ones, and then the Christians, the followers of Jesus. And he was one vicious individual. He would wrap them in, had them wrapped in animal skins, and then they would unleash packs of wild dogs to eat them alive. He would take them, he would dip them in hot wax, tie them to stakes, and then light them on fire as candles during his garden parties. This is significant because this is the context of what's going on as Peter is writing this letter. We know that for a fact that, it's, that more people died in the last century, the 20th century, for their faith than in the previous 19 centuries combined. We know that even today, that people are losing their jobs, they lose educational opportunities, they lose their families, they lose their freedom, they lose their lives every day in our world right now. It's going on even as we speak. We know that in our context here, it's generally really mild, the, the persecution by comparison. At this point, we certainly know, anybody that knows anything about this knows that the persecution is coming here. Unless there's a change in the winds of our society here in North America, the persecution, we see evidence of this all the time. It's coming more and more and more here. 42 times in the New Testament, the word sufferer, this idea of suffering comes up. 12 of those times are in the book of Peter. Last week, Daryl talked to us about authority and suffering in the context of being under authority. And he, he opened up this idea for us from the, the scripture that God puts authority in place. And when we do suffer, he, he, made great, uh, he went to great lengths to talk about how it says in scripture, we do this for the Lord's sake. And how this changes our mindset when it comes to the idea of suffering from something sort of um, exclusively negative into more of an opportunity, into more of a setting the stage of our life to become uh, a mission-type field. As we don't know what God is doing, as he is superintending all of history. And he invited us last week to have a, a Christ-likeness heading into that. I say all of that as background to this passage because this passage gives us incredible hope. Incredible hope for the people that Peter was reading to as they're suffering horrible stuff. He says, let me give you incredible hope. And Peter here is giving us incredible hope as well as we think about this. He says one of the key lynch points to this is in first, verse 15 where he says, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. This is what it, it all revolves around. That Christ is not only the Savior, but the Lord of my life, the one in charge of my life, the one um, who's at the center of my life, who changes everything we do. So back to Bob, the minister at that church, who I believe, if given a chance, would take a passage like I just read to you moments ago and would twist it in one key place to try and make the point that everyone will just go to heaven. And after you die, everybody will just say, well, would you rather go to heaven or hell? Probably Bob would not even acknowledge there was hell. I never asked him that. How would Bob do that? Let's look at verses 18 and 19. 
For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. A guy like Bob would say there, Jesus, post-resurrection, went to this prison, wherever that was, and he evangelized the spirits that were in this prison. Now, I understand this is a complicated passage. I get that. But what does this... Remember, Daryl last week reminded us to read the Scripture and discern it very carefully. What does Scripture really say about this? What does Scripture really say about this? From verse 18, we know that this is taking place post-resurrection. After the resurrection, Jesus went and preached somewhere. But what did he preach? Did he go and say, hey, everybody, you can go to heaven if you want? There's nowhere in the Bible that that's suggested. Not even hinted at. In Hebrews chapter 9, for example, verse 27, it says, Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says we get a second chance after we die. There's nowhere in the New Testament where it talks about someone or people going to evangelize post-death. So what was being said in that verse? Because it's complicated. One of my professors in grad school there's a guy named Peter H. Davids, and, and, and he's generally acknowledged as a, a world expert on the books of First and Second Peter, and the, particularly the book of James. And I remember sitting in a class with him in grad school, and we talked about this particular verse, and what he said was this, this is Jesus doing a victory lap. He is proclaiming victory over those that have knowingly and in an ongoing way rejected the God of the Bible and everything that he had for them. That has said, in your face, God, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to be my own quote-unquote God. And Jesus, post-resurrection, after he conquered sin and death, on the cross and the resurrection has gone and is proclaiming judgment on those and victory over those that have knowingly and repeatedly rejected God. We see this pictured in other places in Scripture. Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to read to you from verses 7 through 11. And um, because God's the creator of time, there's this element in this passage of it referring to the past referring to the present, and referring to something that's about to take place all at the same time. Listen to what he says in Revelation 12. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice. This is John who's writing this. So John says, Then John heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. He's talking about some of the martyrs for the faith. 
Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. It says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 as well, Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This passage in Colossians, in Revelation, in 1 Peter, is reminding us in the midst, particularly for Peter and what's going on in his context, but in our world today, that Think about this with me. Jesus had and has complete victory. He has complete victory over the evil one and all his team. And the one was the message was one of proclaiming judgment over those that had in an ongoing way rejected the living Christ. And by the resurrected Christ over these imprisoned spirits and fallen angels. And he says to them Your future is sealed. You're done. Because I triumphed over sin. I went to the cross. I died in the place of fallen people. Says in verse 18, the unrighteous. That's me and all of us. The righteous one, Christ, died for the unrighteous. And he triumphed over sin and death and hell. And Christ, in verse 19, is doing a victory lap. Like when the marathoner comes in at the end of the many miles that he's run into the stadium, and after he crosses the finish line, he or she runs one more lap around the stadium, even though they don't need to. And they typically run around carrying their flag of their country, doing the victory lap. Why is this so important when we're suffering, because it reminds us that ultimately, as difficult as it is wherever we are, ultimately and completely in Christ, we win. We win. We forget that sometimes, that because of Christ, because of the blood that he shed, that we was represented by the juice there this morning, and his body broken, the broken bread. Because of the cross, we win. And the communion table, it it gives us many messages. One of the primary ones is, we win. And when we share communion together, be reminded, we win because of Jesus. And I can imagine that at the moment of Jesus' death, Satan and his minions are going, awesome, we've crushed him, he's about to die. And that was actually the moment when he was triumphing over them completely, as it says in Colossians. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Suffering and death did not destroy Jesus And Peter says, therefore, suffering and death will not destroy us. He goes on after verse 19, and he says, having said all that, I want you to remember that you are going to be in the minority in the world. And he illustrates this by referring to Noah. And at the time of that judgment, where over a long period of time, many decades, the people were rejecting God over and over again. And Noah was a righteous man, we're told. And there were seven others with him. And they were called to build the ark, if you know the story. 
And all through this time, as they're building the ark, God's judgment is coming. And these people ridiculed Noah and his family. It was really difficult to live for God. And, and Peter is saying, it's just like in the days of Noah. Very few people, comparatively speaking, will accept this message. And Noah and, and the other seven uh, were ridiculed for their faith. But they trusted what God said and staked their lives on it. And God saved them. Poignant question. What are you staking your life on? I remember hearing Rick Warren say this not long ago. What are you gambling everything on? What are you gambling your life on? Those eight people decided to trust the God of the Bible. So Noah, Peter is saying, is a reminder that even though we are decidedly, and we certainly are in this culture, decidedly in the minority, we win. We win. Now, the same passage back in verse 15 says, this is all true, but don't rub people's nose in it. Don't have some kind of an air of superiority, nothing like that. When you talk to them, it says in verse 15, about these things, and the reason for the hope that you have, it says, you know, you set Christ apart as Lord, and and when they talk to you about this stuff, uh, answer them appropriately, um, but do it, it says at the end of the verse, with gentleness and respect, not an in-your-face kind of a talk. It says in verse 21, the end of verse 21 and verse 22, it says, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's coming out of this illustration of Noah, and he says, you are saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to them. This coming Thursday, May the 10th, is Ascension Day, which is, in the Christian calendar, uh, acknowledged 40 days after Easter Sunday. And this is a day where you sit down and you go, just like it says in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is with his team. He's, a, he's appeared to them over 40 days. Uh, More than 500 people are eyewitnesses of his resurrection. These 500 people, most of them lost their lives for their belief in the resurrection. They're not going to die for something they know is a lie, okay? And it's in Acts chapter 1. He has his final little chit-chat with them, and he says in verse 8, I'm commissioning you, you're going to go out and you're going to preach this gospel here in in the home city in Jerusalem and in Judea, in this southern part of Israel, and Samaria up in the north country of Israel, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then we're told that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And this is in fulfillment, and this verse 22 says this is where he is now, here in 1 Peter 3. He ascends to the right hand of the Father, and this is in fulfillment of the prophetic words of the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 110, verse 1, the the early church saw that, just a fancy word here, in a Christological way. What that means is they interpreted that verse Um, as being fulfilled by Jesus in a Christological way. It says in that verse that he will sit at the right hand of the Father. The meaning is clear in Psalm 110, verse 1. Read it. 
The meaning is clear in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Read it. The meaning is clear in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 11. Read it. The meaning is clear in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22. We win. Jesus is reigning right now, and he sits in the place of power. This changes how we do life. It changes what we might go through. We win. My professor writes this, understand as well that even though that this is true positionally, Jesus has yet to bring them all decisively into subjection. We can see evidence of this in chapter 5, verse 8, where it says the, the devil can still attack Christians. This is, an, this is a reoccurring theological theme all through, in particular, the Old Testament. It's one I've referenced before. It's the idea of the already and not yet. It seems like a paradox. In other words, already Jesus completely has authority over all this stuff, as we've read in multiple places, and yet it's still being fulfilled. It's already a done deal, and yet it's still being fulfilled. We see this many times in the Bible. There's also a very grave warning in this passage in verse 19. And it's, in, it's, it's sort of an indirect warning in light of what we've just said. In verse 19, as he preaches to those in prison, indirectly he's saying this to us. Don't choose to go to hell. Don't choose to go to hell. See, they all made that choice. They knew what they were getting into. They'd seen the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and they thumbed their nose at him, and they said, we're going to try to take him out. We think we might be able to. And they lost big time. Don't choose to go to hell. Hell is a place of judgment. Hell is less about a place where God is sending people, and it's more about the idea of people choosing to go to hell. Why do I say that? Because it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, the second letter Peter wrote, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, so God is predisposed. When he looks at us, he would prefer that everyone makes the choice to humble themselves, to bow the knee, and to receive the forgiveness, to admit their sin, to receive the forgiveness that Jesus um, uh, purchased for us on the cross, to be cleansed by the blood of Christ, and to receive salvation, and to submit our life to him and receive him as Lord. That's his default position. That's the way he wished it would go. And so he offers this grace. He extends the offer of grace to everyone. But not a lot of people pick it. We saw that illustrated through the life of Noah. And so it's more about people choosing to reject him and the grace he offers and literally choosing to go to hell. Now remember, there's people, people like Bob, that'll try to tell you, oh, hell doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. If there's a real heaven, <laughs> there's a real hell. And the Bible is very clear. We won't take time to look all the places about this. We've talked about this before. Hell is a literal place. 
It's a conscious place. It's a place of judgment. It's a place of real pain. And Jesus is reminding those in verse 19, you rejected me. You rejected God. And now there is judgment. I think, apart from the things I already mentioned, that one of the worst parts about hell is there's going to be this knowledge, this conscious knowledge that I rejected the grace God offered to me. And I made a deliberate choice to do that, usually repeatedly. And they will live with that for all eternity. So let me just say, and you know, there's really probably nothing more serious that I could say than this. Don't choose to go to hell. Now, if you're here today and you're concerned about that at all, do not leave here before you come and speak to. There'll be some people at the front that you could pray with or speak with. Some of the pastors will be hanging around here and come and talk to someone. I'm confused. I've got questions. We welcome that. Don't leave here before you talk about what is this grace that God wants to offer and has offered to me. So what, is, uh, what does this victory mean? When Jesus is proclaiming the victory lap, obviously I've said over and over, I say it again, in the end, we win. That puts a totally different spin, a totally different vision on what we're going through in life. We understand that because we win, that the scripture has told us in those four different places that all spiritual authorities as powerful as they are, and they're very powerful, are subject to us in Christ. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done, and he has triumphed over them on the cross. Remember that when the evil one tries to attack you. And if you're living for Jesus in a biblical kind of way, he will attack you. It says in the book of John, the world's going to hate you, and you're going to have trouble. Don't be surprised. But in Christ, as difficult as it can be, we have the victory. In verse 21 and verse 22, in Christ you have authority because of the victory he has won. There's also forgiveness that he offers. Do you know and are you living sort of in the deep end of the refreshment of forgiveness? Where, where in a sense the weight of the world is just taken off your shoulders. That's real freedom, people. Not, we're not perfect, but when we're forgiven, really forgiven by God, that's freedom. And those things that we've been enslaved to in life that are self-destructive, Jesus can remove those. We still face many problems in life. You've often heard me say this, that when you're a legitimate Christ follower in many ways, life will probably be harder <laughs> than if you aren't. If you just kind of float through life. Um, the Jesus way is harder. This is why Peter talks to them this way in the midst of that suffering. The victory lap also means that we don't get what we deserve. We deserve a Christless eternity in hell. We have given the holy God the stiff arm, if you know football at all. We've given him the stiff arm. 
And we deserve a Christless eternity in hell. That's what we've earned. But the victory lap means we don't get what we deserve. That in Christ, we can be forgiven. It also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that in Christ, the victory lap means when, when we're tempted, God will always provide us with a way of escape. He'll give us that escape door, and he'll help us go through it if we're willing. It also means that the victory lap means, among other things, that, we, that when we face death, and everyone in this room one day will face death, right? If Jesus hasn't come back first, everybody in the room, we forget this, Every one of us is going to face it one day. It changes how we sang that. One of the songs we sang, you know, half an hour ago or 40 minutes ago talks about this. It was referencing 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Because we win, we might grieve when we lose a loved one, but the sting of eternal loss is gone because of the victory lap. And finally, I conclude by reading, and I want you to personalize. I'm going to read verse 18. I'd like you to plug your own name into this, because this is what the victory lap gives us. For Christ died for... I'm going to put my name in. Is that okay? For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous Scott. To bring Scott to God. You can put your name in there. Christ was put to death in the body, but was made alive by the Spirit. And we win. Oh yeah, we're concluding right now. Let me pray with you. Let's bow our heads together. So, if you're here and, and you'd like to be prayed for for any reason, like I said, uh, we've got Andrew that's going to be up here at the front to my right, your left. He'd be honored to pray with you about anything, anything at all. But if you've got questions or you just sense something sort of tugging at your heart, the Bible says that's the Spirit of God kind of drawing us towards Jesus. So if you've got that going on, I encourage you not to leave until you uh, um, come and talk and pray with someone about that. I'm going to pray now and, and then we'll be dismissed. I just remind all of our worship teams and our production teams there's a, there's a lunch and, and meeting or whatever right outside the doors over by the coffee station after, after church. Let's pray together. Thank you so much for the victory, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you purchased it at an incredible cost, mind-boggling cost. Thank you that you didn't run and abandon us when that's what we really deserved. But instead, you said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And you stood in the gap for us. And we're deeply grateful for that. We pray that as we go through the day, each day going forward, maybe we bind it that we win. That really then, you know, if Jesus has changed our heart, that he longs to do that in that person sitting across the table from us or in the yard next door or whatever. So may we point them to Jesus, as it says in verse 15, with gentleness and respect. We do this now, inviting you to fill us anew with your spirit and live for you. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. We're